All right, welcome back, friends, to the Religionless Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Turner, and this is our special Christmas episode, our first Christmas episode on the first season of this podcast. And today, I am delighted to have with us uh, Dr. Alexander John Shia. And uh, Dr. Shia, what do you prefer? Alexander, Dr. Shia, is there a particular way you'd uh, prefer I I, I refer to you throughout the... Actually, Alexander John, it's like I've gone back and sort of recaptured my middle name, which I love. And uh, maybe at another time, I could tell you the story behind that. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah, I definitely want to hear it. Okay, so we have with us Alexander John, who is the author of several books. Most recently, I believe, is your most recent book, Heart and Mind, or is it your most? the, the most The most recent book, which is actually just beginning to ship is Radical Transformation, The Four Gospel Journey of Heart and Mind. It's the hardback edition. Oh, uh, okay. The paperback edition will continue to go under the name Heart and Mind. Gotcha. Okay. And that's the one that I have. I didn't even know the other one was uh, was coming out. So that's good yeah, news for me. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe someone can get it for me in time for Christmas if it's shipping cool. that quickly. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, author of several books, including Heart and Mind, uh, Returning from Camino, Hidden Power of the Gospels, um, Heart and Mind was absolutely uh, transformative for me. I also listened to the Audible, the audiobook, which I'm not sure if it was the book or a teaching you did um, on the Four Gospel Journey, and uh, that was also equally just challenging and enlightening. And then, and then the latest thing is, uh, for one month, I'm selling a provisional PDF called "The 13 Days of Christmas," which is probably a lot about what we're going to talk about today. Well, that's that's awesome because actually I didn't even know that was done yet either. I was going to ask you about it because um, on several podcasts that I have heard you on over the last couple of years, I know you had been working on uh, the Christmas book, which again is a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. And I have been uh, chomping at the bit since I heard about that to read it because uh, so much of what I have heard you bring out about the Christmas traditions and whatnot was just, it was so enlightening, so enlightening to me. And um, I, I was telling you just a moment ago off air and uh, I say this now just for the listeners so you can even kind of understand, you know, why this interview is so important to me is, you know, a couple of years back and and when I sit down and do the math, I'm not even sure what year it was because 2020 has been several years in one. But um, I had, yeah, <laughs> I was still kind of reeling from my own experience of, of deconstruction, what have you, which at that point, it was several, several years in my rearview mirror. But it really led to a drastic life change, um, you know, of having to make the tough decision to transition from being a pastor to being an author and the, the, the itinerant speaker thing and all of that. And, and when you go from the steadiness of the pastorate to the unsteadiness of this kind of life, well, it can be rough with three kids and a wife and just the unsureness and unsurety of it all. And so it was difficult. And so I was I was several years on the other side of it. But even so, my world was just still a little everything with that once was solid, still felt a little bit liquid. And um, it was during the winter. Well, it was leading right up to Christmas. And I was really things just seemed dark. And I don't really even know how else to explain it, because I've not passed through many seasons like that in life. I'm I'm typically a very upbeat naturally predisposed to happiness kind of guy. But this season, just I, I was reeling. I, I don't even know how to explain it. And um, I happened upon um, some of the podcast interviews you've done with some other people, Rob Bell, some of the stuff that you were talking about. Um, 
it just it just illuminated so much and it lit my heart up and warmed my heart and really I, I don't know it really altered my thinking and I'd like to say the course of my life and uh, so then I of course I, I I discovered the rest of your work um, but man your work has really meant a lot to me and I've really appreciated it and um, so that's really why I wanted to have you on today is because I wanted um, our listeners to hear some of these things about Christmas that I've heard you share that that so impacted my life. And I think sometimes it's something we can treat with a with a, a trivialness, you know, the but it's anything but it's such a sacred and powerful and meaningful time and the the metaphors and the archetypes. It's, it's so powerful and deep. And I'm really excited for the audience to hear about it. And I'm I'm also really excited just to sit back and uh, hear it hear it again myself. So what we usually do on the show is uh, I, I kind of have the guests tell a little bit of their own story, um, a little bit of their own background, where they came from, how they got to where they are right now. And uh, sometimes that takes up the bulk of the show. But today I know we want to focus on a lot of the Christmas stuff. But at the same time, I'd like for the listeners to kind of get a little bit of an intro to you and to who you are and and where you come from. So if you don't mind just taking a few minutes and, and sharing a little bit of your your journey and your story with us before we get into the, some of the more specific um, issues we're going to discuss about Christmas and the symbolism. Cool. And I'm honored to be your first Christmas guest. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1950s. And my parents came from Lebanon as children in their parents' arms uh, and arriving in the, in the States um, in the early part of the old century and making their way to Alabama, which, which is very interesting because there's a huge Lebanese community in Birmingham. And when I grew up, we grew up under the thumb of the KKK. So Birmingham really in that, at that point was an apartheid city. And uh, so though people might look at me and think of me as a white person to myself uh, with all those years in Birmingham, I know that I'm on the other side of the tracks. It's like the word colored in Birmingham meant Lebanese, Jewish, Greek, uh, almost anyone from the Mediterranean region who had a darker uh, skin pigment and Catholics. And my family is uh, an Eastern tradition, Roman Catholic from, from Lebanon. And, so when I was born, it's a tradition that the father gives you your name. And with that name comes a responsibility. And uh, my family line is the biological line of the priests back in the Lebanese village. And, and every one of my ancestors, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, etc., cetera, um, who was a priest, was named Alexander. So when, when I was born, my father looked at me and said, he will be Alexander John, and he will be the next in the line of priests. So that came with a little bit of privilege, but it also came with a huge amount of responsibility and obligation. Sure. Well, it kind of fed me. That was, that was really sort of my bent, and um, I went off. And I went to the University of Notre Dame for, for uh, college, um, having negotiated with my father that I could go to college, but then I would go on to seminary. Well, when I was at Notre Dame, um, I was doing all my 
pre-philosophy and pre-theology getting ready for seminary, but my major was anthropology. And I had the distinct privilege of my life, really, which was to be sitting in lecture hall with Joseph Campbell, who came every springtime to teach these advanced seminars. And he taught... Not many can say they did that, yeah. No, and and he was teaching in the theology department. And he was teaching Hebrew and Christian scripture as great myth. And he spun my world. And really, uh, even though after Notre Dame, I did go on briefly to seminary, what Campbell had, I mean, Campbell tore down the old temple. And I didn't really have the new temple yet. Um, But when I got to seminary, I was totally bored because I had come out of this, the years at Notre Dame, which were so creative and searching and looking for new understandings. And then I got to seminary and it was, here's the question, here's the answer, make sure you dot the I. I was bored out of my mind. Anyway, so I left seminary. Um, 30 years on in the year 2000, I uh, finally found the key which opened the door to an entirely new understanding of the four Christian Gospels. And I, I say entirely new, it's entirely new to us. But I firmly believe that it was the way that Christianity read the Gospels from the 2nd to the 7th century. And then it was lost. But, but in Campbell's language, there is one great story of transformation, which is going on in every cell of the cosmos. And he called this story the story of the hero or the heroine's journey. And he said that at core, the story's got four parts to it. And his belief was, and it's become my belief now, that no great story of transformation can be told unless it has all four of these parts to it. And the four parts are, the first part is hearing the summons to the journey. The second part is facing great trials and obstacles. And the third part is receiving a gift or new vision. And the fourth part is returning to community with that new vision uh, and, the, and the desire to serve in greater, more vital way. So when I heard him talk about this in 1972, I immediately sort of intuitively said, there's got to be some connection between this four-part structure and why we as Christians ended up with four gospel texts. Yeah. But I couldn't find I couldn't find my wind. I just I had the intuition, but it just I, I kept almost like Cinderella's sisters trying to put the, the foot in the shoe. I kept forcing it and, yeah. and I just I really couldn't see the way that they fit together. And then in the year 2000, in a moment, I saw this, I don't know what to call it, but I saw something and I realized that the entire text of Matthew is the story of Jesus teaching us about how to face change or in Campbell's language, um, how we receive the summons to the journey. Hmm. And the entire gospel of Mark is 
the story of Jesus teaching us about how to face tremendous trials and obstacles. And the entire Gospel of John is Jesus teaching us about how to receive new vision and understand the experience of joy that we have. And then the fourth text, the Gospel of Luke Acts, is in Campbell's language, uh, returning to community to serve. And there and there it was in that moment. And for the last 20 years, it's been the main focus of my life is to help people understand that each one of these texts is not only, quote unquote, the life of Jesus, but it's the life of Jesus which gives us the inner journey of transformation through the Christ that each one of us is walking constantly over and over and over. The cycle just keeps repeating. So that, 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 I mean, from the year 2000, that work has taken me around the world. Um, and uh, now just this month, December, we are releasing the hardback edition uh, of that text fully re-edited with illustrations, etc. After 20 years, I really feel like this will be the book of record. Hmm. Wow. But it also it also is the basis of what I'm calling a return to indigenous Christianity. Hmm. And and the further work from that is to help people understand that we have in the northern hemisphere the creation of a Christian year is not about the life of Jesus as the core. The Christian year was to teach the life of Jesus as we experience it in nature. Hmm. That every one of the Christian feasts is rooted in what's going on in the earth and the sky in the, at the moment that the story is told. Hmm. Well, well, <laughs> Wow, there's a lot I want to. Uh, there's a lot I want to jump on there. Uh, number one, when you were just when you were listing off the four uh, legs of the hero's journey, if you will, I just teared up. And I've heard that before, and I know that, and I'm familiar with Campbell as well as your work. But man, just for whatever reason, when you said it, it just zinged me. Could you, uh, w- when you started discovering this and seeing this, can you? Was your life already on a similar trajectory? that you kind of, and, and is that kind of what helps you see these elements present in the gospel, of course, working with Campbell and his thoughts, or, um, or was it more you discovered it and then you lived it out? Or, you know, can you tell me a little bit about that, like how you saw this play out in your own life? Well, go back to my, my years at Notre Dame, I was in anthropology, and in some ways I've really never gone very far from anthropology. And, and my field of study in anthropology was rites of passage or rites of initiation. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered in that, before I heard Campbell, what I discovered is that all the world's great rites of initiation are essentially four-part structures. Mm-hmm. And exactly what Campbell describes as the one great story of transformation is also this same structure that's going on in rites of initiation. So from, from my anthropology and then from Campbell, um, I went into psychology, I went into spirituality, I went into theology, I ended up getting a doctorate in clinical psychology. And what I discovered through all of those forms is, is that 
everybody's describing this four-part structure of transformation, and they're all using different words and methods, and and largely they're fighting with each other over the costuming when yeah. there's just one journey going on. And if you can go if you can go beneath the costume to the journey, you've got this incredible universality that goes across culture, gender, um, ethnicity, whatever. And so um, I for for 20 years before the year 2000, for 20 years, I had been around the world teaching psychologists and therapists about this four-part structure to transformation that lives underneath all of our methods. And um, in my clinical psych degree, my major uh, area of study was healing from trauma. And there again, all the research in trauma was talking about this four-part journey uh, in the healing of trauma. Well, my understanding of Campbell, the four-part journey through all these different disciplines, and then especially hearing about the four-part journey as you heal from trauma. In the so there's uh, so I was discovering in my clinical psych work that there is this four-part journey of healing, which the trauma literature describes. And then in the year 2000, there was this last piece of information which set each one of these gospels, each one of these texts, at a particular moment in time with what the community was wrestling with. And I suddenly realized there it was for me. That was the, that was the final key to unlock this door. Each one of these four communities were at a particular point in the healing of trauma. And the evangelist or the author or whoever was writing the text to this community, inspired by spirit to write the text in this way to this community, what was drawing him or her forward was the dilemma of the community. And the dilemma of the community compelled the author to write the text in a certain way. And each one of these four texts is utterly true because it's the truth of the journey of transformation. So the, it, they're infused with the life of Jesus, absolutely. But, but it's not the life of Jesus for the life of Jesus. It's the life of Jesus in us as we grow and transform. Yeah. So as we're, whereas in, in evangelical tradition, for example, you know, it's, um, it's insisted upon that the gospels are almost, um, like a documentarian's view of the events of Jesus life. And then of course, you've got to pound puzzle pieces into place to make everything fit. And, you know, we're left with this <laughs> kind of a mess, you know, we're, we're told that, no, this is exactly as it happened from beginning to end. These are just guys telling, and that's the whole point. It's just so we have this um, beginning to end without any error or contradiction, seamless story of the life, birth life, you know, death, resurrection of Jesus. And then when you actually get into the texts and read them, you're like, um, 
I don't actually see what you're talking about here. But what you're saying is, is that these texts, while true, while testifying to the life and the ministry and the work of Christ, they're speaking to the work, to the life and work of Christ within specific communities of believers at specific times who have undergone specific traumas. And the story is being told, yes, as truth, yes, as history, but there's some play there. But it's being told in such a way that it speaks to how it is Christ is working and dying and rising, if you will, within the community. Precisely. So the the core truth of history is there, but it's not told as history because yeah. to tell something as history would kill the risen Jesus, which yeah. is something that our scholars today don't understand. If Jesus is risen, Jesus lives, and therefore you're not going to be tied back to history. It's a living, yeah. it's a, each one of these communities from 65 to 95 first century had a dilemma which was different than the dilemma of the first half of the first century. And they turned to the living Jesus in their midst to teach them, now, how do we resolve this question? Hmm. So, so very much it's like, yes, we have the stories of Jesus, but we don't tell the stories of Jesus about back then. We bring that story to today and let it live anew in this moment, in this time, with this people facing this dilemma. Yeah, that's that's absolutely beautiful. I mean, and it, it runs contrary to the way that I was raised. I, I wouldn't say I was raised to believe this, but it was kind of in the air that this is just how you believe that scripture is, is, is almost stagnant. It's not stagnant. It's, um, it's stationary. It doesn't move. It just says what it says and it means what it means. And if it harmonizes with your own journey, well, good on you. But if it doesn't, you know, but what you're saying is that God writes God's story in such a way that it's 100% informed by our story. So our stories are so intertwined that they don't really exist without one another. And that the way God tells God's story is by like embedding himself in our own. You know, I think so many who are listening to this. Well, actually, Alexander, if you wouldn't mind, um, I don't want to take up too much time because I know we want to get into some of the Christmas themes, nor do I want to spoil anything in the book because everyone should definitely get your book. But would you mind hitting upon briefly the the um, circumstances in which the four Gospels were written or under which they were written and why? Absolutely. And, and, the, and the final piece is I'm going to talk about each one of the four texts is written in a topography, a landscape. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really critical to where we're going to go in our discussion of Christmas. So oh, perfect. Matthew, Matthew's community uh, is written in the days uh, right after the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 and the massacre of the Jewish priesthood. And people, even Christians, are shaken to their core. And the whole sense is, did Jesus come, live, die, rise, and then go away again? Is the covenant with Abraham over? Um, can Is there even a future to move forward? So Matthew is the text of beginning again uh, in the face of a tremendous loss where you might think this is the end. But the text of Matthew is, when you are in the time of darkness, 
that's not the end. That's the beginning. And the whole, the whole subtext of Matthew is about climbing a mountain of God, which is now an internal mountain. But also understanding that this is a dark time, and the dark time is not where God is not. The dark time is where God is with us, and this is beginning time. Then the second text is Mark, second text in the cycle. Mark, written to the Jewish Christian community in Rome in about 64, 65, first century. Nero has condemned Jewish Christians to execution, having accused us of uh, setting the great city of Rome on fire. And anyone who is a believer in the Christus must die. And so we are in our houses in Rome. We're waiting for the knock on the door. The soldier is going to come and ask the head of the household, are you a believer in the Christus? If you say yes, you and your family, down to your grandchildren, will be taken to the circus maximus and killed. The text of Mark is the text of how can you walk through the valley of the shadow of death by the power of the resurrection. Uh, the text of John, John coming very late first century, we believe coming out of the city of Ephesus, and that community is the first pan-tribal community that we have a record of. This is Gentile and Jew. This is male and female. Um, this is free and slave. And this community, which heard the beatific vision to be a new form of the human family, uh, in response to the Christ, that beautiful vision happened in the 40s. But by the 90s, all the old jealousies, all the old the patriarchy, all the old privileges have, have resurfaced. And the community is actually beginning to wonder if the vision was true. And John's text is about the new vision, which deconstructs the old temple. This is so much about what I would like Christianity to hear today. The new vision must deconstruct the old temple. The old temple has to die. Hmm. And then John gives us a series of meditations on the vision of oneness that keeps us wanting to have the door open and are pulling up another chair at the table and another chair at the table and another chair at the table. Because the old temple... Even if it's Christianity, the old temple becomes complacent and is satisfied with where it's been and closes the door and counts the number of chairs at the table and says, this is enough. The fourth text is Luke-Acts. And Luke-Acts, we believe, is a text which is also written from the great city of Antioch. But it's written as a book to be taken around to all the new emerging Christian communities in the Mediterranean because we're all facing the same dilemma. And the dilemma is um, the emperor has looked out. We have now separated from our Jewish mother. Our Jewish mother has said to us, if you, are, if you believe in the Messiah that's already having come, if you believe in the Christus, you must leave. You're no longer part of us. And when that happens, the emperor looks out and he sees, oh, no, I now have a new religion on my hands, and I don't like what they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
I don't care about the name Jesus. I don't like what they're doing, which is they're talking about the oneness of all people. And that's not something that I as emperor want to see happen. And they talk about if you have wealth, you have an obligation to share with the poor. And they talk to slaves and telling slaves you have human dignity. And they're talking to women and telling women that they have an equal status. And on and on and on and on. And for this reason, the emperor makes us illegal and condemns us to die. And the Gospel of Luke, Acts, is the text which says, we will meet the Roman Empire and we will meet the Roman Emperor. And yes, we will speak truth to power. That's the easy part. Here comes the hard part. We're going to speak truth to power in love, which means I don't care how much you hurt me. I don't care how much you oppress me. I don't care how, how deeply you reject me. I will not demonize you. I, I will fight you in the battle of values and beliefs, but I will fight with love. Okay. And the text says, and we know that love wins. We don't know the year. We don't know how long. And those early Christians had to do this for 225 years before they changed the Roman Empire with hardly a battle because they wow. changed the value system of the culture. So that's the context in which the really what we know as the Christmas story, let's say, is written, Luke, correct, you know, within that scenario, within that context. Like what we, the Gospel of Luke, which is where most of our Christmas imagery is derived from, that's the context, that's the backdrop, right? It is. And I, let me, I'm just going to back up just a moment because I dropped it out. But Matthew, oh, sure. yeah. Matthew is written on the landscape of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Mark is written, written on the landscape of the Sea of Galilee, which is the place of death and chaos. John is written on the landscape of the new Eden, the garden restored. And Luke is written on the landscape of the endless road. So, and the actually the physical experience of mountain, sea, garden, and road tell the great message of that text. Right. Hmm. So now let's look at Luke. Because um, Luke is the text that gives us what we think of as the history of Jesus and when he was born. And it certainly does give us history. But it doesn't give us history for history's sake. Here is Luke's um, song of praise that will go down through the centuries. Jesus is conceived and born at a moment when the Jewish people had no hope left, seemingly no hope left. The, the, the emperor was a despot equal to Hitler. And really, it's like when you hear Caesar Augustus and you hear about the peace of Augustus, I, I want your stomach to turn. This is the yeah. peace of the Roman emperor who has so brought his empire an inch away of starvation by his taxes. 
So they won't have the physical strength to raise up arms against him. This is, this is the peace of his army, not the peace of the empire. Yeah. And secondly, the, the governors in Palestine and Syria are his stooges doing his work, subjugating those peoples, rate, constantly raising taxes so they hardly have food for their children. And then thirdly, there's, this is a very, very painful moment in Jewish history because the priests in the temple in, in Jerusalem have sold their soul to the emperor because they want to rebuild the temple in this magnificent style, which they do. But the gold of that temple is taking food out of the mouths of the Jewish people. So this moment, the Jewish people understand they have no help. The government is against them, and their religion is against them. Okay. Who could ever have expected that there could be a turmoil? I mean, this is one of those moments in history where you could have rightfully, logically said, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. And at this moment, Luke tells us the story of the nativity, not just as a moment in history, but also as an eternal moment that's constantly born and reborn and born stronger in moments of utter difficulty. Um, let's go to the to the second day of Christmas. And one of the things I would yes. have people remember is, is that Christmas is a 13-day festival, yeah. regardless, of, regardless of the carol that we sing. It's Christmas Day followed by the 12 days of Christmas for the 13-day festival because 13 was the sacred number of birth to the, to the accounts. And what we are doing is over the 13 days, we are celebrating the lessons and the mystery of, of birth. And it's a present moment rebirth in us. So on the second day of Christmas, which is December the 26th, and many of us in those days where we used to have paper calendars might look down and see that it was called Boxing Day. And where does this come from? Because most of us think of the December the 26th as the day that the Christmas sales begin. When the Christians met the Celtic world on the second day of the Winter Solstice Festival, men and boys were sent out, and the men were going to school the boys in killing of the bird, the wren, the R-E-N. In the Celtic world, the wren was was considered the king of all birds because it was so fertile. And the wren is an image of the male part, the phallus. And this is part of, the, the, of teaching the boy the mystery of blood and sacrificial blood as part of the birthing process. Girls and women have that lesson in their body. Boys have to be taught this. Um, 
the Christian world certainly was no part of killing a bird. But we looked at that ritual and we said, ah, but we know the story and we know the truth. We have uh, the figure of Stephen, who was the first person who died for Jesus, who gave his blood for love. And so we made this day the feast of Stephen, the first martyr for Jesus, and teaching to men and boys about how we have to not just physically give our blood, but we have to give the sweat of our heart. So they made this day a day of teaching about the spiritual practice. And you know, we might remember the beautiful carol of the good King Wenceslas, who went out on the Feast of Stephen yeah. to take food and clothing to the poor. And so the spiritual practice of Boxing Day is that men and boys go out and they collect food and clothing and money and take it to the poor and the widowed and the ill and the shut-in. And we have transformed the outward physical killing of a bird which represents the male part and spilling that blood into the earth and taking it into the inner spiritual practice that men and boys must learn how to live their life as a sacrifice for us so that others might live. And then it came down to us, the whole idea of gathering things, these things was going to go boxing. And that's where the term boxing comes from. Beautiful. Beautiful. So each of the 13 days of Christmas has got a lesson like this where we looked at the Celtic ritual, outer ritual, and we found the inner Christian story that matched the ritual, but took it away from just something that you do in an outer way and brought it into the inner truth of one's heart. Hmm. That's beautiful. It's beautiful, man. Um, as we're as we're closing, just because again, I really am trying to be respectful of your time. Would you mind for just a moment? I heard you. I don't remember which podcast it was. I heard you um, comment on this on, but uh, and one of them you got onto the Santa Claus Saint Nicholas uh, issue. I, could you share a little bit on that? Sure. And, um, yeah. Uh, first, just a piece of trivia. Um, how did how do we today end up with a red and white Santa when in history the Santa was either forest green, deep midnight, or wine red, or purple red? But uh, the red and white happened because uh, there's a company in the 1920s that wanted to sell to families and to children, but the U.S. government wouldn't let them. Uh, because of the presence of Coke. And so Coca-Cola created Coca-Cola dress Santa in Coca-Cola red and white, and it went around <laughs> it stuck. So that's as deep as that tradition goes. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> the, the creation of, um, uh, we, we've got the figure of St. Nicholas, who is a fourth century bishop, in Turkey, 
He's an Arab. I like people to remember that St. Nicholas is an Arab. Um, and, uh, and, and then we have the, the uh, well, it's St. Nicholas is the great saint of the first thousand years of Christianity because he's the image of generosity. And in many ways, St. Nicholas, his tradition faded when St. Francis came along. And then today, the preponderance of St. Francis is much like St. Nicholas in the first thousand years. But he was, he was uh, elected bishop at a very young age. He came from an extremely wealthy family. And he gave all of his wealth away. He, he died almost a pauper because he had given all of his money to help the poor people of his diocese. So for the Celts, uh, generosity and learning the lessons of generosity was critical to the winter solstice festival because without generosity, the poor, the elderly, the shut-in would not be able to physically live until the springtime. So we, we take uh, the St. Nicholas story and we marry the St. Nicholas story to the story of the green man. Now, the green man in Northern Europe is this figure who leaves the earth at the summer solstice and goes and lives on the North Star. And at the winter solstice, the Celts would, would build these huge bonfires of the sacred wood of the oak tree. They were offering their sacred tree to entice the green man to come back to earth for literally the earth's regreening for the springtime in the agricultural cycle. So um, the green man who lives on the North Star was entreated to come back into the bonfire and re-enter the earth. Well, it's not hard to understand North Star becomes North Pole, bonfire becomes chimney. St. Santa Claus coming down the chimney into the hearth is a way to understand the green man's coming back into the earth and that all of this and also the green man's totem is the reindeer. But all of this, the the marrying of the green man with St. Nicholas into the day Santa Claus Take it inside. All of this is a deep lesson about love and generosity. The winter solstice is not just about the earth greening so that we might have an agricultural cycle and feed people, but it's also about the necessity for our inner generosity, for our living for others beyond ourselves. um, you know, in in, the, in this COVID year, yeah, desperately and deeply need to be inspired to live beyond ourselves, to live for each other. Yeah, to be regreened, if you will. Yep, sir. I could keep you on for probably another three hours. Well, more than that, actually, just listening to you talk because uh, you have such a beautiful way of expressing these things. And, uh, but I'm so appreciative of the time that you 
generously gave to us. And I know our listeners will be as well. Thank you so much. Um, uh, before we go today, though, I'd like you, do you um, would you share your website and any other contact info that you'd like to share just so people could get a hold of you or even to um, support the work you're doing if, if there's um, outlets available to do that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm first of all, Jeff, I'm just delighted to be here. I, I'm passionate about this material. And uh, except for the fact that I have another appointment, I'd stay on another hour. Ah, I appreciate it. Please, please, everyone that's listening, if you will, go to my website. We've just totally opened up a new website. It's brilliant, I think, uh, designed by a group of, of uh, 30-somethings in Washington, D.C., who I uh, got so excited about my work that they offered to, to help create this new website. It is Quadratus. That's Q-U-A-D. Quad, think of four. R-A-T-O-S, dot com. Quadratos.com. And once there, there's all manner of things. You'll see a tab that says books. You can see all the books um, that I've written including this new provisional PDF, which I've just released called The 13 Days of Christmas, that will take the material that we've just talked about deeper. Um, that's only going to be up until the 6th of January, and then we're taking it down. Uh, I'm asking people for comments. I'm going to rewrite the material and release it as a finished book next fall. Um, there also uh, is, is a page there about support. And there are all manner of ways that you could donate to this work if you were so inclined. But my, mainly, please go, please enjoy all the material that's there, a number of podcasts, uh, a number of teachings, uh, and the possibility of buying books, etc. And there is a vital new Christianity which is being born. And I'm so excited and honored to be part of that. Agreed. Yeah, definitely everybody check out his work. Actually, if you heard me clacking on the keyboard while you were talking, that was me uh, purchasing the PDF of the Christmas book myself because I can't wait to get more into that material. Um, I so appreciate you sharing your time with us today and your wisdom and your heart and um, your years of um, hard-earned knowledge it's very much appreciated. Um, and yeah, thank you. We, we really love your heart and uh, appreciate you so much, man. So thank you for being with us. Everybody, thank you for listening. Um, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year if I don't talk to you before then. Um, and again, Alexander, thank you. We really appreciate it. Merry Christmas, Jeff. Merry Christmas, yes. everyone. Merry Christmas to you, too. All right. Thanks. Thanks.